Today's episode is brought to you by Alexis M. Smith's Glaciers, a novel which Karen Russell describes as filled with kaleidoscopic pleasures, says Russell, using prose as clear as pure cold air, Smith moves the narrative vertically as well as horizontally, each ticking minute yielding more insights into a young woman's life revealed over one single day. The book became a reader favorite following its publication in 2012, and now, more than a decade after its initial publication, Tin House is releasing a new edition of Smith's beloved novel, featuring an introduction from Maris Kreisman, who writes, Glaciers feels refreshingly uncluttered, so clear and concise that even its smallest details contain whole galaxies. And I myself will add that 11 years ago, Alexis was on the show to talk about glaciers in one of the first handful of interviews I did as host of Between the Covers. So you can check out our conversation about glaciers, about the original edition of it, and seek out this new edition, this reissue of Glaciers, which is out now from Tin House. I've long been a lover and admirer of Roger Reeves's poetry, as well as how he talks about it and into it. And as a poet with close connections to past between the covers guests, Natalie Diaz and Solma Sharif, I was also often watching or listening to Roger in conversation with one of them or talking about their work or writing about it. One of my favorite things as a reader is to read prose written by poets. So I was unusually excited to be able to talk to Roger in advance of his debut collection of prose, his collection of fugitive essays called Dark Days, and to discover at the end that this was his first discussion of it, and to be able to share that with you just days before the book comes out. To look at the essay form through a poet's eyes, which, by doing so, becomes a deep dive into poetry and narrative, both, into questions of time and how to extend it or disrupt it with sound and silence, and how those strategies have been and can be employed to create fugitive spaces within a larger world that, depending upon your subject position, may not allow you to fully breathe, to fully live. We also look at sounding across difference and how to create space for one's own people without harming another. The provisional and also always renegotiated gestures of creating spaces that recognize the other, that resist the temptation of centering one's own story, that find our own presence at the margins of our identities. I'm excited to share this conversation with Roger Reeves because Roger's enthusiasm for the power of language and sound is contagious, and his deep love for poetry, not as revolution, but as a way of knowing why it must come, to borrow Adrian Rich's words, feels like it speaks to the most vital questions of creating spaces to live and thrive in the world we've all inherited. 
Roger's contribution to the bonus audio archive creates an unexpected connection with the last episode, the episode with Palestinian novelist Isabella Hamad. Roger's essays explore so many things that we only touch on some of them. And one figure he explores is the Palestinian writer Hassan Kanafani. And for the bonus audio, he gives an extended reading from Kanafani's novella, Return to Haifa. This joins many past contributions from everyone from Natalie Diaz to Dion Brand, and also the contribution by Isabella Hamad of a reading of Walid Daka's letter from Israeli prison, Parallel Time. The bonus audio archive is only one of many things you can choose from when joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter, which also includes the possibility of becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before the general public. And every supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode, and every listener supporter is invited to help shape the future of the show by joining our brainstorm of future guests. And you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Roger Reeves. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet Roger Reeves, earned a BA in English from Morehouse College, an MA in English from Texas A&M, and both an MFA in creative writing and a PhD in English from the University of Texas at Austin, where he is now himself a professor of English and creative writing, teaching classes on poetry and black studies, blackness and the literary imagination, and blackness and the American imagination, to name a few. His debut 2013 collection, King Me, was picked by Library Journal as one of the best poetry books of that year. And in the nine years between it and his second collection, Best Barbarian, it would be an understatement to say that the world stood up and took notice of Reeves as an important new voice in poetry. He was granted fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts in Kaveh Kanem. He won the Whiting Award, garnered Pushcart Prizes, was a hotter fellow at Princeton, and later a fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute. His poetry appeared everywhere from the American Poetry Review to Poetry Magazine, 
And when Best Barbarian arrived in 2022, it did not disappoint. Jericho Brown said of Reeves's second book, From Grendel to Gilgamesh, Best Barbarian reviews and retells the most ancient of stories so that Roger Reeves can tell his own. The capaciousness of these elegiac poems, their Whitmanian need to hold and see it all, mirrors the speaker's need to be known fully as a black father, a man in love, a surviving citizen, a son to his mother, and an investigator of his father's whereabouts even after death. This book is an education on this history of the soul. Terence Hayes adds, I cannot overstate the brilliance of Roger Reeves. A sentence inside a Reeves poem is a score of breath, a scripture with texture and subtext, a tightrope of expansive existential syntax. Best Barbarian is a monumental and elegiac tour de force. Peerless and unprecedented, it is one of the best books I've read in years. Tracy K. Smith calls the book a revelation. Kathy Park Hong, a 21st century masterpiece. And Best Barbarian became not only a finalist for the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work, the Penn Volcker Award for Poetry, and the 2022 National Book Award for Poetry, but also won both the 2023 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award and the 2023 Griffin Poetry Prize, whose judges said in their citation, at the intersections of history and myth, elegy and celebration, these poems chart the ruptures and violences enacted across time and space particularly against black humanity, while leaning always toward beauty. Beauty and tenderness abound in this collection that dares to risk both, a brilliant and ambitious book. Roger Reeves has since, as part of his Best Barbarian victory lap, gone on to win a Guggenheim Fellowship, and we're lucky to have him here today to talk about his first book of prose, his debut essay collection, Dark Days, out with Grey Wolf. Kirkus calls Dark Days a cerebral, ruminative essay collection brimming with insight and vision. And Publishers Weekly adds that Reeves interweaves autobiography and American history with his trademark lyricism shining through, proving that he is just as affecting in prose as in verse. Finally, Pass Between the Covers guest Mitchell S. Jackson says, Pro tip, partake of the brilliance of Roger Reeves. Among other marvels, the essays in Dark Days challenge silences and attempted erasures with acuity, with eloquence, and with a thunderous, beating heart. Welcome to Between the Covers, Roger Reeves. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Dave. Great to be here. I wanted to start with questions of moving from poetry to prose, from the line to the sentence, and what things within the essay form you were excited to employ versus the things within prose that 
perhaps you were wary of and needed to strategize around. I, I think of your discussion with Paul Muldoon when you were a Griffin Poetry Prize finalist before winning the award, where he asks you if you start with an idea when you write poetry. And you say, your trust is in language, not in an idea. That ideas are like tethers, and that language is like freedom. And when you say language, I don't think you mean the connotative, semantic aspect of words, or not only this. And yet the essay is a form that is one of the premier places to work out and develop ideas, a place where continuity of thought can be conjured and sustained. You've also brought up elsewhere Barbara Christian's The Race for Theory and how she purports that black poets and black art theorizes itself, that it doesn't need to adopt a theoretical framework. Similar to your new book, which engages with the music of Outcast. In your Harvard lecture, you quote the line from them, which is a question, how to catch the feeling off instrumentals. And your subsequent talk was about how to write out of what you call sonic material. So thinking of ideas as tethers and the sound of language as freedom, and you now stepping into the form where traditionally ideas are developed, Talk to us about how you navigate the essay as form, what you anticipated it would be like, what you discovered, how you worked with it, or how you worked against it. That's a great question. When I say language, what I really mean is sound, probably, right? Like that sound is ultimately, I think it's one of the most freeing things we can do is just to utter, right? Just to be in utterance of something, a cry, a yelp, the oomph, or the mm, or the yeah, Right. Um, I'm really interested in that sort of gesturality of language, uh, the way it can sort of contain so much. Right. Which is what the poem gives us. Right. That sort of condensed gesture that is always inherent in language. So with with the essay, I think I became seduced with the possibility that the essay can do more than hold ideas. And, and honestly, it's in reading. It was actually reading uh, cultural critics and theorists like Fred Moten. Right? When I when I read something like In the Break, mm-hmm. right, and I'm watching Fred uh, signify in certain ways, there's all these sort of moments of signification and, and signifying that comes out of the Black community. I thought, oh, this is really, this is something else. He's really sort of pushing the form of the essay, right, pushing its possibilities, pushing opacity, right? Um, I think that what I'm sort of resisting at times in the essay or what I'm trying to sort of hold in question is the desire for absolute clarity. It doesn't mean that I'm interested in obfuscation, right? But I am interested in an irony and multiplicity. Uh, I think that's the thing that the poem gives us, right? The line break is ultimately the most sort of uh, ironic gesture, right? It's an ending and also simultaneously announces a beginning, right? So it's a it's an apocalypse, right? And I think that's why poems feel so dangerous to people is that they have to be willing to sort of sit in rupture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, you know, you have the seduction in the essay of, of prose, which is feels progressive, right? There's an argument there. You will know something allegedly at the end of this that you didn't know before. You will have a better understanding of something, right? Um, I, think, I think we too often associate the essay with a sort of kind of like a recipe, right? 
But even those who cook know that there's a lot of improvisation in making a recipe. There's a lot of improvisation in quote unquote following a path. And so what I was interested in, in with the form of the essay is playing in playing in sound, but trying to see if I can do something that I think I, I associate with the poem, which is, can I get free? Could you get free in the language such that the language begins to reveal uh, and begins to push the, push the essay? And I think there are moments of that, but there's a type of like, what I didn't anticipate in writing essays is the type of emotional improvisation that would occur. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So what I mean by that is, I didn't know I was going to feel certain things and that those feelings would move the essay. Uh, like a, there's one essay where at some point I realized I was like, oh, the whole time I've been writing about love. And I say that in the essay, I said, you know, I thought I had been writing about this, but actually I've been writing about love this whole essay. And it's an essay about intimacy and thinking about what is the intimacy between black and native folks um, in our respective dealing with the catastrophe of America. Right? And, and trying to make community and make home and make love and how, right. And I realized I'd been writing about love the whole essay when I thought I was writing about this sort of political, social uh, idea, uh, you know? And so the, so in some ways the essay turns, right. The essay has its own voltas. So I know I'm, I hope I'm answering the question a bit, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so that's some things I was thinking about. Um, and also, you know, like <laughs> As a as a academic, you're always writing essays, and so I, you know, I'm, and I was watching essays do move into the culture, uh, move into mainstream culture, being talked about in ways, and I think there's like, we're sort of predisposed to the essay via our uh, love of the hot take, and uh, sort of the call out, right, which are really prosaic, right? It's another form, I think, of kind of essay writing or miniature essay writing, right? Um, and so I was like, oh, we're what if we just like extend this? What if we like ext- extend critique and, and bring back the days of like Buckley and uh, Baldwin debating uh, yeah. on television or Mark or, or uh, Malcolm X right uh, in London right? Like we need to bring back that. So so my book I wanted to try to convene that spirit if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. What I noticed thinking of this essay collection written by a poet is that the book is bookended by images, that we begin and end the book outside of language. And later I do want to talk about the movement between these two images. But in between the images, within the words themselves, within the text, one major through line of the book is sound, meditations and explorations on different types of sound and silence, whispers, grunts, singing, laughter. It makes me think of Christina Sharp's Ordinary Notes, which also meditates on images and yet also is deeply engaged with sound. And one ordinary note she explores is the character High Man from Toni Morrison's Beloved, who marks the beginning and end of the day for the chain gang, yelling a high at dawn and a ho at dusk to both mark the day and sort of interrupt the daily violences that the prisoners are enduring. So staying with the tether of ideas and the freedom within the sound of language in its broadest sense, I wanted to talk about that strange aspect that is particular to words in contrast to, say, visual art, insofar as words hold that tension between idea or meaning and the meaning that is in their sound that isn't obviously meaning. Um, 
And I wanted to take this into the way the church has influenced you, even as you seem to have stepped away from its ideas. You're the son of a Sunday school teacher and holy roller. You, when you were younger, could have imagined becoming a minister. You mentioned the Pentecostal church in your background in almost every appearance that I've watched you speak in. And I also watched you give your first commencement speech at the Seminary of the Southwest, which was amazing. You're at a pulpit. You're getting everyone to greet their neighbors, to participate in a call and response, as if you were leading a service. And you seem deeply in your element. Um, you, you talk in dark days about the church being the place you learn to read. And in order to be present in discussion groups with adults, pretending to be reading before you could read, making the sounds and mouth movements of reading. And you talk about the notion of getting happy in the black Pentecostal church, of being filled with the Holy Ghost, that this tradition of praise and ecstatic dancing is actually a West African tradition smuggled into Christianity. And you also wonder if the God of the King James Bible is the same God as the God of the Pentecostal church, given a different relation to the body and the body's relationship to the spirit. And I guess this is my long way of asking you to unpack further how you clearly cite the Pentecostal church as foundational in many ways to your poetics, but not in its ideas, ideas which I think you have stepped away from, but being more interested in what was smuggled into the church and I guess I wondered if it would be right to say you're smuggling them back out, that much like the relationship of sound to sense, it is sound that's foundational here for you. Um, talk to us more about the church and the sermon, the spirit and the body in relationship to your, your poetics. I think I, I can talk about that by way of thinking about becoming a student at a university. Uh, when you often move into an English major or to into the university, you don't find many folks that come out of the Pentecostal tradition, right? Um, and you don't find many people that sort of come to sound the way I've come to sound and to think about the importance of sound. Like I was raised with the belief that if you said the right thing or sung the right way or sung in the right key, you could actually heal someone, right? That someone could like come out of the streets, be on drugs, hear you sing, and all of a sudden, it would vibrate in their body and they would no longer want the drugs. They would no longer be an addict, right? Like, I would, I really believe that, right? So it was as a kid, when I'm growing up thinking about what does language do, I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I'm watching people literally use sound to transform their lives. Mm. And so even if the pedagogy later or the sort of the doxology is problematic, right? I think what is sort of posited there about sound is really useful outside of it. I think that's what we, that's what, I think that's what jazz blues, I think that's what house music does, right? Like, I think that so much of like joy and ecstasy comes from sound, right? Or comes from the gesturality of sound and even silence, right? So I saw this in the, in the Christian church growing up. And then, like, when I kind of broke away, I would go to the club and see the same thing happen, right? It was just to Cisco or to, like, some reggae music, right? It was, just, it was, it was, but people were 
trying to achieve the same thing. They were trying to, to feel something, right? As Alcat says, trying to catch that feeling off instrumentals, as you brought up earlier. I think this gets to the idea of like fugitivity in my work, right? Like I think the criminal, right, or the fugitive is the one who can see purpose, can, can, can see possibility in something that is discarded or something that people didn't see that as the original purpose. I like to watch people and I often watch unhoused people and the way they look at the world. And I started this because I lived in Atlanta and I was really, really broken. Sometimes like I have a little dollar extra and I would give it to a homeless person or some unhoused person and we would talk. And I learned to do talking to them about how they see the world, right? And that's kind of the way I think about like material is that, you know, that discarded cigarette on the ground may be really, really useful to someone else, mm. right? Or like, I think about this with like mask making and, and um, building sculptures, right? Like, like what someone considers refuse may not be refuse. And so for me, uh, the church at times, uh, I disagree with the, the doxology and the pedagogy, but what I didn't disagree with was the idea of like sound being transformational. And so I wanted to keep that. I wanted to keep that. I wanted to sort of be honest about that because there's a way in which if I'm not honest about the soil that I was planted in, then I don't know what type of tree I'm going to grow out of it. Right. And we have to be honest about the soil we were planted in, the seeds that were planted in us. And I learned I couldn't resist that. The goal wasn't to like try to be something I wasn't. Right. The, the goal was to integrate it all. Right. Like to integrate Tolstoy with <laughs> with outcasts and think outcasts <laughs> with Hassan Kanafani, right? Like I, I wanted I want to put it together. Like I think about like Coltrane loving Stravinsky, right? And thinking about the Firebird uh, suite. And you can hear to me when I'm listening to a Love Supreme, you can hear Stravinsky's influence. You can see why folks like Miles and and Monk and different folks were like gravitate. Right. So to me I want to be capacious in this way. Right, which is that it's all sonic material. It's, it, it, it can all be used, right? And it can be used in ways that the original source never intended it, which is often happens in language, right? This is why, again, the Pentecostal church comes up. Sometimes one word can be, and, I, I, and this is really wild, was we used to just sit, have this song that was just yes. And people would just sing yes. And they would sing it with different variations and modulations of the voice. It was really, really beautiful. And I used to love to watch and I would sing and I would participate and feel that like the way in which just saying the word yes can change my interiority change. It can be elegiac in one moment and, and praiseworthy in another moment, mm -hmm. right? And then I took, I was writing plays in my early 20s and there was a theater game uh, that was about building a dialogue between two characters with one word that could actually sort of state the conflict. So whatever the word is, could you sort of move through a whole scene where we sort of develop a conflict, discuss the conflict, and sort of move out of the conflict with this one word? Mm. And I was like, oh, that's just, oh, that's, the Pentecostal church does that. <laughs> oh, that's, and I was just like, oh. And that's when I started seeing like, oh, maybe this thing that I'm doing over here, which seems really divorced, from and far away from the way I was raised is actually 
the same thing. Like there's a way in which I really feel like I was being prepared to be a poet or some type of artist going to church as much as I went to church, mm. singing in the choir, right? Watching my mom be a Sunday school teacher, uh, writing plays, you know, for church services, right? So to me, I was just like, oh, we can do all these things simultaneously because their strategy is really a feeling. Yeah. Right, like we think about language, right? Language is ultimately a strategy of feeling, right? And, 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 it, and it has a grammar to it, right? And we use that grammar to make things. Music does the same thing. It's a strategy of feeling. And so I just want to sort of play with these. So the essay is another strategy of feeling, right? The strategy of knowing. So I just want to use all these different strategies of feeling and knowing. Yeah, I love that. Well, I want to ask you, since you brought up fugitivity, you you mostly bring up the notion of fugitivity as a poetics the way Fred Moten does, who suggests that blackness is fugitive insofar as it is a refusal of standards upon it, where he says, quote, fugitivity then is a desire for and a spirit of escape and transgression of the proper and the proposed it's a desire for the outside, for a playing or being outside, an outlaw edge proper to the now always already improper voice or instrument. You speak about it in this way too, the runaway, the escapee, but I wonder if it is also not the desire for the outside, but the smuggling within, the finding of the outside in the inside. For instance, the notion which you explore in the essay collection of cakewalking where slaves would perform these formal dances that included these exaggerated high leg prances and stiff backward tilts of their upper bodies and where the plantation owners were often the judges. But the cakewalking, unbeknownst to the masters, was not a form of mimicry of the formal mannerisms of the masters, but a form of mockery of the masters from within the way they move. So it's sort of smuggling in a commentary into the form. And the smuggling of West African traditions into Christianity isn't the same in that Christianity isn't being mocked, but it feels like the outside is found in the inside, perhaps in the smuggling. And I, I wondered if that felt like a form of fugitivity to you as well. It does. It does feel like a form of fugitivity, the outside that's already inside. Um, I think that's, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think why that happens in Christianity is partly because Christianity is African, right? It's coming from Africa and the Middle East, right? So there's a way in which it was already outside, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens through the Nicene Council, through like, you know, it becoming standardized and sort of Europeanized is that a lot of its African sort of presence is nasty race right and so i think uh what winds up happening is that i think a lot of black folks they reanimated of sorts right um so that would be my guess as to that but i also think about jadakiss um the rapper yelling at the verses we outside right like you can find me i'm outside right and i love this idea of being outside the outside inside interior um the romantics were big on this too like uh if you think about like wordsworth and like there's always been in aesthetics right like some outsiderism, right? Like the outside, right? I think about the hippodramas during the romantic era where they would like take exterior, like horses, right? 
and bring them on stage, right? And that was a way of sort of bringing the natural world inside, right? Trying to sort of disrupt these interior, exterior, right? And so I, I, I'm, I'm so about like being outside in that way, right? Um, and also like, I was always, it's, it's weird. Like I was always in my family kind of the improper one. You know, we weren't allowed to tell jokes in the Pentecostal church, but I was always trying to be funny, right? And like being a comedian and making my mom laugh at things she wasn't <laughs> supposed to laugh at, right? She, I hope she don't mind. <laughs> but like, I always think that like that impulse, and I, I have that same impulse as a writer and artist and poet. Like one of the things that I, as soon as someone tells me like, oh, you can't, ha- you can't do this. I'm like, ooh, that's exactly the thing I want to do. If you tell me like, you can't have a deer in a poem. I'm going to put a deer in a poem. Right? Like as soon as you tell me, because to me, I know that that is the space of possibility that you're you're demarcating right you're saying or it's the space of quote-unquote darkness right the thing for which uh cannot be touched or the thing that should not be named or or you're being indecorous right and i think that the moments of being indecorous are the moments that we find we find certain possibilities that we need to live Mm. i always think about that quote I, i have it in uh the book uh in dark day, in dark days, where I say and it comes from Audrian Rich, where she says poetry is a revolution, but a way of knowing why it must come, right? And I think sort of finding that outside, right, while you're inside, is really important. There's a there's a really good book by Ashanti Crawley called Pentecostal Breath, I think it is, and I taught a whole section on glossolalia from that book and the idea of like speaking in tones. And I've really been really interested in this idea of like how nonsense is a type of outside, right? That language is always moving towards nonsense. And in fact, it is mostly nonsense. All you have to do is listen to a child speak or, you know, if you let people tell you about poetry, they'll tell you that it's a bunch of nonsense, right? And so I'm really interested in sort of the nonsensical as a way of like breaking a thing down or something like glossolalia, right? Or, or like ecstatic dance, as a way of sort of finding something else, kind of moving beyond. Well, perhaps the most literal example of going inside to get outside is Henry Box Brown, who, as a slave, mailed himself in a wooden crate to freedom, where for a while he became a noted abolitionist speaker, and of which you say, as part of a larger discussion of how you see Black linguistic signifying, as related to fugitivity, quote, in stealing himself out of bondage, Henry Box Brown problematizes the notion that he is chattel because he animates the question, how can property steal property? So thinking of this, I want to return again to sound and think about sound as a way to trouble time and how troubling time creating a different time within time might be an act of survival or escape or resistance or revolution. Dark Days looks at many examples of this, a Chilean singer breaking the curfew of silence during martial law, a Syrian child's ecstatic laughter with bombs falling all around her, the hush harbors, the provisional spaces slaves created within the noise and violence. Somehow with all of these, I think of time. I think, for instance, when you say, dancing creates a beyond without the necessity of a future, 
or when you talk about the notion in the Pentecostal church of stepping out on faith, you describe it as a practice of inhabiting the invisible, moving off feeling and sound, negotiating the future, not by sight, but by touch, even if what must be touched has not arrived yet, occupying a non-existent form and turning it into fact. All of this reminds me of Dion Brand speaking of John Coltrane's eight-minute song, Venus, which she describes as speaking out and beyond time, blowing into the future, a song that sounds like we in the future, a song that evokes what she calls the job of black artists, to play where we ought to be living. And she says that at some point in the song, deep into it, it rejects its former self while also somehow accepting that rejected life, like a shadow embedded in the song and in Coltrane himself. And your book opens with Walter Benjamin's Angel of History, the angel that is facing with its back to the future, the angel that faces the past and witnesses the never-ending piling up of catastrophes before it. And that disastrous momentum of the piling up of catastrophe creates this wind that prevents the angel from being able to close its wings. So it's perpetually blown backward into the future. And what people call progress is actually this, this catastrophic wind in this formulation. But you stake a different relationship to time for black life, saying that your version of the angel of history stares at the same time into the past and the future and is actually unmoving and still unaccounted for yet by history, which feels in a way like Coltrane, both blowing from the future and beyond time and playing from where we ought to be living. Um, Man, you read, you read, like, <laughs> That Dion Brand is, that's a, I teach that, that particular moment from the blue clerk. Just want to affirm, you yeah. reading the shit out of the text, brother. <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing moment in the blue clerk. It's amazing. Like what you're describing, I'm so interested in, in this, right? Like, so I had a friend, Nasser Mufti, who, who teaches at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And he, he was writing about the difference between time in the colonies and time in the metropole. Mm-hmm. And it made me start thinking about the way in which like black folks are always trying to interrupt or sort of, yeah, particularly the time of, of colonization, the time of, of oppression, right? And so I think like breaking the shovels, right? Quote unquote laziness, right? Is actually a manifestation of this sort of, this time breaking. I think about Sikso from Beloved, right? Like when he dis, when uh, Morrison describes, he's the minor character in chapter two where Morrison says he stops speaking English because he sees no future in it, right? And that Cecil never obeyed time. He would go out to be the 40 mile woman, come back. He could never get the timing of the potatoes, right? So for me, time is clearly where, you know, I think about Ellison too. Like he talks about in the beginning of the prologue of Invisible Man, right? Um, the boxer, the the yokel that steps into the professional sense of time and still is able to knock him out because he sort of disrupts the professional boxer's sense of timing. 
I, I really think that that's exactly like where freedom is, mm. right? Like, I actually think that that's where it really, really lives is how do we disrupt time? Um, but I interrupted your question, brother. Let me, let me. No, that's the, you're answering it already. The only other thing I was going to mention was your durational poem, something about John Coltrane, which takes as long to read as it does to listen to Alice Coltrane's song of the same name. Um, so I, I, I wanted to hear more about time time and sound or time and history in relation to dark days and your poetics, but it sounds like you've already started to do that. You know, it's funny is I think because I've lived in different parts of the country that have very different senses of time. The Northeast growing up in New Jersey has a really different sense of time than Atlanta, which has a really different sense of time than Texas, which has a very different sense of time in Chicago, and what I noticed was where I felt most comfortable in a sense of time, right? Like, I'm always thinking about timing. I played music. And so for me, Texas, even though it's a weird, like, I love its sense of time. Love Texas' sense of time. I love the South's sense of time. It's something I've been thinking about is how can we, uh, Black folks, folks trying to achieve certain uh, levels of liberation and freedom, trying to sort of live our best lives, as we say, um, how can we be aware that that's about time? Mm. That that's about, right? I think about someone like the NAP ministry talking to us about, right, uh, this, this, this movement now to like rest, to resist the 24-7 cycle of something like the internet. Right? I think of Franco Biffo Berardi's idea of like uh, critiques of capitalism, right? Uh, he's an Italian philosopher that writes on poetry and capitalism, right? And there's this idea of inexhaustibility. And I actually think that's exactly, like, I think that's what slavery and certain types of oppression oppression wielded through work is about, mm -hmm. right? That we, we, we constantly are sort of inexhaustible. We're an inexhaustible resource. When in actuality, we know that that's not true. And I think one of the best ways to resist, it's kind of awesome like Billy Budd, I prefer not, right? Or just like, no, I'm not going to, right? And so I think that this is a this is about under, stepping inside of like capitalism and, and stepping inside of like its sense of time and, and teleology and say, oh, watch, no, no, no. I don't, I don't have to participate. I don't have to, right? So like non-participation is actually something, and I think that that's about time, right? When you're like, no, yeah. I'm not, I'm not gonna participate in this. That makes me think of the Sabbath in its most aspirational or most beautiful form, and maybe Heschel's writing about the Sabbath, but you, you don't exchange money, you don't do work, you're supposed to create messianic time. So mm. you're creating the future, essentially, before the future. Yeah. Uh, you're living where you ought to be living in this one, like, time a week because what you do is when you inhabit it even if it's just for a moment i talk about this and in singing into the silence of the state even if you inhabit a type of future for a moment and then the police come or someone disrupts it right or the university says you got to get out of this room you can't be doing that in this room right you have now made it possible to enter it again and with variation right because then you learn it's flexible Right? And one of the things I think we often want is we kind of want, and this is my beef with nation, right? The nation in, in, the, in the country, we want, it to, we want it to be solid. We want this sense of place when in actuality it must always be in flux, right? Because I think that once it becomes solid, then what we try to do is protect it, 
right? And what we have to sort of resist is the desire that this thing will always be. And I think that like we learn this from fugitivity that like the fugitive must catch as catch can, must run when, must be still when they can be still and then run when they can need to run, right? And they must pull up stakes when they need to pull up stakes and set and, and sit when they need to sit. And that's the thing that I think what I'm trying to sort of think about in this book, which is, you know, we might need to begin to like slow time or change time or like the man under go underground, right? Or move to the side of time, right? Move to the left of it, move just above the, the sort of contemporary swing of time. And I think jazz does this, right? Yeah. Jazz is always, you know, like this is, this is why I love Coltrane and Ornette Coleman in particular, because it was, you know, jazz had been codified. It was like, oh, we're gonna do this thing in four four time. We're gonna do it in this certain way. And we're like, no, 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 we can, we can like open this up in other ways, right? Um, and I love this idea. I think like Stevie Wonder's a musician like this, where they're always looking for the next sound. They're not looking to repeat themselves. And so, uh, yeah, I, I just love this idea of like time moving in this track. Well, the angel of history in dark days is the boy in the image that opens the book, a boy who's black and who is at Obama's presidential inauguration. And I feel like another major thing that, that Dark Days examines is repetition, especially repetition that involves a sort of imagined body swapping uh, in your terminology, something you imagine that the boy is rejecting, that he's not imagining, imagining himself aspirationally as he looks at the first black president being sworn in. He's looking with distance and dubiousness. But before we talk about the dangers of body swapping repetition, I wanted to spend a moment with what you see as the good kind of repetition. For instance, you say in this book, repetition is devotion, which I think you've already evoked really well with that song with the one word, yes. Um, and I think of your craft lecture about troubling the image, uh, a lecture that I discussed when I interviewed Gabrielle Bates, how your line by line reading of Bridget Pekin Kelly's poem, The Dragon, and you emphasizing how she returns over and over again to the same image. And with each return, something accretes with time in the image. The bees are as large as melons. The next time we return later in the poem, we learn the melons are orange and step-by-step step, things accrue. And you say that images are not static and arrested, but moving through time themselves. And also thanks to you, thanks to the lecture you gave at Harvard, I learned about Derrida's interview of Ornette Coleman. And one part of that exchange between them I found really interesting. I found many parts of that interview interesting, but this part where Derrida says, quote, Perhaps you will agree with me on the fact that the very concept of improvisation verges upon reading, since what we often understand by improvisation is the creation of something new, yet something which doesn't exclude the pre-written framework that makes it possible. That's true, says Coleman. Then Derrida continues. I am not a quote-unquote Ornette Coleman expert, but if I translate what you are doing into a domain that I know better, that of written language, 
the unique event that is produced only one time is nevertheless repeated in its very structure. Thus there is a repetition in the work that is intrinsic to the initial creation, that which compromises or complicates the concept of improvisation. Repetition is already in improvisation. Thus, when people want to trap you between improvisation and the pre-written, they are wrong. And Coleman answers, repetition is as natural as the fact that the earth rotates. And lastly, I wanted to bring up, as you do in the book, Judith Butler's notion of subversive repetition. Um, and you bring up subversive repetition in many ways, the cakewalking, the subversiveness of prayer. And here, Butler is speaking about gender when she says, the task is not whether to repeat, but how to repeat, or indeed to repeat and through a radical proliferation of gender to displace the very gender norms that enable the repetition itself. And in that spirit, you say, quote, the playfulness in black speech is the pleasure of getting free while cakewalking the master's discourse. So again, a subversive repetition that really, in a way, isn't a repetition at all, but Perhaps it's related to your unmoving angel of history, a creating of a different weather or climate or world within the world. And I just wondered if it provoked any thoughts for you about repetition in relationship to the essays, but also in the relationship to your poetry. Yeah, um, it's funny. Um, it made me you made me think of a lecture that Nali Diaz actually gave about repetition. Yeah, as well, I was. Right. I think maybe we were at the same lecture. Was it at Tin House? Yes. Yes, with the yes. Steph Curry dribbling video. Yeah. 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 It's funny. Basketball is a great analogy for this because you dribble, right? Like you dribble, you dribble. Like there's, and there's, but there's all these sort of variations like the hezzy, right? In the dribble, right? Where's your head in relationship to your body, right? In the right? So there's all these, like, where's your hands? Does it look like you're about to shoot? Does it look like you're sort of, how do you cross over, right? There's, I think when I think about repetition, I'm always thinking about, the same with variation, right? The changing same, right? The blues does this so well. Uh, and so it's funny when you were bringing up Bridget Bikin Kelly, I kept thinking about the lyric and a lyric sense of time versus a narrative sense of time, right? And one of the things that I think I've learned so much from Bridget Bikin Kelly as a poet is that she arrests time. That if you look at that poem you referred to, when there's a reference to time happening, so the bees are carrying a snake out of the garden and the, the speaker says it took as and, and basically the question maybe that is asked of the speaker you can imagine is how long did it take the bees to carry the snake out of the garden and she says it took the length of time it takes for bees to carry a snake out of the garden so the reference is through the image that is being made right and i, I was like oh that's a lyric right that's a lyric moment it's, it's not 9 p.m. There's not an objective sense of time. The image, the lyric is subject to the time of its making, right? Which is really, really brilliant. And I think that this is what, why jazz is really, and music can be really subversive, is that it requires you to be in the time of the making of the music, which is not 
anybody else's time. It becomes your time because you're co-performing through listening to the making and thus it's being made much like reading, right? And so there's a way in which like, I'm really interested and I really wanna like, this is why I think I'm a writer, right? Like I wanna sort of interrupt people's sense of time and but by interrupting, offer them another possibility that there's this other time that is that's sort of existing in pockets or is running right alongside the time that they think is time to like, you know, be worried about, you know, what's going on on Netflix, right? Like, yeah. like there's a way in which some of the possibilities, some of the freedom we want is actually being able to step inside other people's sense of sound, other people's sense of time and being able to be with them, right? Um, and so, man, everything you're laying down, I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you're doing a hella great, like you're, you're reading this, you're, I mean, yes, like I don't know anything else to say. But, <laughs> we should yes, say yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that there's a way in which for me, I think the Pentecostal church really taught me that because if you, I don't know if you know anything about Pentecostal church, but we don't have like uh, <laughs> a set, like you'll get in at, 10 and be done by 11. You can get in at 10 and be done at noon. You can get at 10, be done at four. Yeah, right? Like, it's all about how spirit moves, right? And so uh, that's just that messianic sense of time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so to get back to repetition more specifically, I think of repetition as, yes, devotion, but also the through the repeated act. I think of, I'm a runner, so I love repetition, right? through the repeated footfalls, one can, that can move one into another space as well. Mm. Right. I think moving so like it's, it's sort of, you become, it becomes an interiority that's actually built through repetition is another way of saying it. Right. You sort of build a type of mind or a type of ontology right there. Well, I have a paragraph I'd love you to read about repetition from the essay collection, but, but before you do, I wondered if there was a poem or a part of a poem that you think of that might exemplify repetition or subversive repetition. That I've written or someone else? Either way. I mean, if I was thinking of you, but if you wanted to pull something and just read something from someone else, that would be great too. Funny, I was going to read a, a, a poem from Solmaz, uh, and she has this poem I really love called The End of Exile. And I find it to be doing repetition, but, but, but different. Let's see, let's see, we'll see. You'll, you'll let me know. This is Samaj Sharif, The End of Exile. As the dead, so I come to the city I am of, am without, to watch play out around me as theater, audience as the dead are audience, to the life that is not mine is as not as never, turning down Shiraz's streets. It turns out to be such a faraway thing, a without which I have learned to be. From bed, I hear a man in the alley selling something, no longer by mule and holler, but by bullhorn and jalopy. How to say what he is selling? It is no thing, this language thought worth naming, no thing I've used before. It is his life I don't see daily, not theater, not play, though I remain only audience. It is a thing he must sell daily and every day he peddles 
this thing, a without which I cannot name, without which is my life. I love that poem. And I think there's something to the repetition of without which, the I, the am, uh, the sonic repetition, right? Like to me, this is a poem that plays with repetition in really subtly, beautiful ways. Uh, it's a really, I think it's a, an amazing, amazing poem. Well, from you, I was hoping we might hear the last half page of the essay, Beyond the Report of Beauty. And since you referred to Michael in this excerpt, maybe you could orient us to the video of the actor, Michael K. Williams, that is a vital part of this piece as a lead into hearing it. Sure. So Michael K. Williams, you know, the actor that played Chalky White, uh, Boardwalk Empire, played Omar in The Wire, uh, you know, played just these groundbreaking roles uh, of Black masculinity and sexuality uh, that complicated these, these sort of the bifurcation that we have of like, this is what a man is and all these sort of toxic ideas. Uh, he's a beautiful dark-skinned man who had a scar across his face that he got in a fight at a club. And uh, I've just, I love his work. Um, I love that he was a dancer. He went on tour with like Madonna and things like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't know he was a dancer and choreographed and like danced with Madonna and danced and like danced and like, I think George Michael. Like uh -huh. he was, he was, he, he was all over the club scenes and and, and uh, dancing in the, in the 80s. But he becomes this actor and during the pandemic, uh, there's a video of him dancing in a park in Brooklyn. And the way he dances reminds me so much of sort of the dances that I saw Black folks do in my church when we would get happy, right? And the music would move. Um, and I just, I just loved watching him dance. And I found the video just right after he had passed from a drug overdose. And I was just thinking about watching him perform this dance maybe a year before, eight, 10 months before he was going to die. Um, and also in the pandemic. And so I just was, I just, I just was moved and I wanted to sort of sit with him dancing and his, his beauty. Mm -hmm. And which is also a way of thinking about me as a dark skinned black man and the way in which, you know, we, I grew up being made fun of quite a bit for being dark skinned as a kid, but the way in which I've learned to really love and accept the beauty of dark skin. I love it. Um, and so uh, I try to celebrate it as much as possible. Uh, and so this, at the end of this essay, I'm thinking about the interactions and the intersection between Michael Williams dancing, the uh, church I grew up in, and I'm sort of leaving on, leaving out via the church, leaving the essay via the church. The only way out was in and through the flesh, lifting it higher higher as in taking its measure, luxuriating in its finitude, its exhaustion, its absolute presence. It must be done through the beat, the tambourine, the bass drum, the tom-toms, and the syncopated crash of the hi-hats and cymbals through repetition. In full gospel church of God, the saints clambered toward ascension through dance, yes, but repetition catapulted and catalyzed the ascension 
was the meta and subtext of it. Repetition prepared and activated the soil for the saints to grow their desires. Repetition was a type of devotion, a call, a prayer. If I dance in this one spot over and over again, my mouth calling after Jesus, then God, beauty, relief might visit me, might know I'm serious, devoted. Lord, I only ask you to take the difficulty that doesn't allow you to be seen in me. Like the woman in black pushing Michael. Michael grimacing, trying to reach where her dancing is pushing him. Going into the gut as if that is where God and all the beauty that one possesses reside. That is why Michael was grunt. Yes, his grunting says, here am I. Here am I in full gospel church of God, thrown down in memory, watching one of the saints tip her head backward, her eyes closed, singing just one word, yes. Sometimes she holds that yes for a whole measure, her voice trembling because she's at the edge of herself and wants more and can almost touch it. I've been listening to Roger Reeves read from his debut essay collection, Dark Days. So much of your book, I think, could be viewed not just through sound, but through questions of repetition, not when the Holy Spirit has entered us, but when we imagine ourselves in the position of another. And there are countless examples of this in the book that are otherwise, I think, quite different from each other, but are all cautionary in one way or another. And I I wanted to take two examples that to me seem different, but where with both you pause and refrain from what you call body swapping and then have you talk more into them for us. The first seems quite clear to me, the boy in the photo at Obama's inauguration, who in your reading of his face is not looking at Obama aspirationally or inspirationally, dubiously instead, and by extension looking dubiously at the American project in relation to black life. And the refusing to put himself in Obama's shoes, the way Obama himself is placing himself in the shoes of all the presidents before him, is something you yourself refuse to do in the book. That opening section of the book, you talk about Obama's Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, which he gives, opening the speech by first situating himself as the commander of the U.S. military, and which is really a very long justification for the importance of war and the various ways war can be not just necessary, but just. And I remember being amazed by this at the time, but I was happy to be re-amazed going back to it, where he says things like speaking about our burden, the, the American burden of conducting just wars. He says, we have borne this burden not because we seek to impose our will. We have done so out of an enlightened self-interest because we seek a better future for our children and grandchildren, and we believe that their lives will be better if others' children and grandchildren can live in freedom and prosperity. Blah, blah, blah. But also early in the book, you're, you're invited to give a poetry reading at a former plantation in South Carolina which prompts a long meditation on the place itself where you walk the grounds and come across a brick in a building that still retains the indentation of a finger 
a child's finger, a child who was a slave's finger indented in it. And your desire to place your finger in the groove, to touch where he touched, to understand him better perhaps by placing yourself quote unquote there. But you're wary of your own impulse. You, you refuse your desire saying, what would sliding my finger into the indentation erase, overwrite, make opaque? What is gained in putting my hand into this lacuna of history? This question of your finger in the brick seems very different than the question of whether one sees a certain arrival of one's people when a black person becomes president. But both bring up this question of, of body swapping and, and your wariness and refusal of it, even if from my naive outsider point of view, it seems like one is more fraught and dangerous than the other. So I guess I was hoping you could talk about the juxtaposition of these two and how they do and don't resonate with each other for you in dark days. Sure. I just want to make a little correction. The The image is actually of a boy at the, the image you're referring to. The first image is actually he's a boy at a rally for it the presidential candidate Obama. Okay. And it's Arizona. It's actually yeah. not the inauguration. Um, and so uh, I just want to make sure that like we have that historically. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Uh, he still, he still could be potentially imagining the hopefulness that yeah. black people could arrive as a president. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I it's so. not. I think, yeah. Yeah. I think um, I was really disappointed, but I shouldn't have been disappointed right like he's a democrat at the end of the day it's an american president who is interested in furthering the american agenda uh which is not always necessarily an agenda that's on behalf of the poor or black folks in america <laughs> or folks all over the world right like i when you when you recounted his speech i remember that speech and thinking this is the most arrogant speech that one could give, right? When you bring up this moment of like, oh, it's enlightened self-interest. At the Nobel Peace Prize, like read the room. <laughs> well, he does share the Peace Prize with Kissinger now, so. That's another, I mean like. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's, it's, it, was, it was one of these moments where like quickly, I was disabused and many I think were disabused of the fact of the notion that this was going to be anything like if we thought that this was going to be a, a type of progressive reimagination because I don't it was not going to be radical right but a little bit progressive I think that was quickly quickly we quickly disabused of that so I think when I think about the boy there what I'm also what is interesting to me is the the boy's face is so flat right it is it is one that is like to me he's reading it's it's like when we read and i don't know if you've ever had i've had the unfortunate of watching people read like it's something i do because i'm a professor right so i like i watch people read i watch like i watch students read or you watch someone read a text and you can see like there's a like a, just just a flat sort of like and i was just really surprised that this like six maybe seven year old kid was looking up possibly at Obama or another politician or someone else speaking with this really sort of beautifully mature affect, I would say. And that's the way I would describe it, uh, was that he's he's looking, he's really trying to listen and, and, and listen below, 
right, the words, um, or at least that's what it appears to me. And so I do think that that is a different type of position than putting my finger into the brick at the plantation. And I think the reason, I think I would not necessarily be thinking about these moments. I can, I'm, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of like how I come to thinking about these body swapping moments if it wasn't for someone like Sadia Hartman, right? And seeing the subjection. And she talks about this letter that an abolitionist is writing to his slave owning brother. And in the letter, basically, I think it's John Rankin is writing to his brother and he says like, imagine it were me or imagine it was my children. And so there's this moment and I talk about this in the book there's a lot of times when we're trying to do empathy, this is the problem of empathy, we have to like take out the body, we have to remove the pain body that is there, either opaquely, implicitly, sometimes explicitly there. And we say, imagine it's me. And so there's a way in which we have to sort of like change, right? And, and what becomes a priority is not the pain body, the enslaved boy, right? But our own emotional desires or our own uh, desire for some type of catharsis, right? Replaces the actual ameliorating of the harm or addressing and redressing harm. And so I just, I, I want to be careful about how I put my body in the way of or in front of obscuring bodies that are actually like that have that, that are actually sort of announcing in a, in, in our sort of their pain has not always been readily addressed, observed, acknowledged, right? So there's that for me. And I even think about this in terms of like, I had a colleague um, at the University of Illinois, Chicago, again, historian who, who really had me thinking about like, particularly because I'm a writer, right? How do I put black bodies to work in text, even if they're fictional bodies? Because there's still an ethics and a history of black people being like, what do we do with like if I'm going to write about like even a fictionalized version of an enslaved person, right? That is still intersecting and interacting with the real history of Black people being forced to be slaves um, here in the U.S. And so there's an ethics to how we put Black bodies to work, how we put how we show Black bodies in pain in work. I think there's a. It's not that we don't show them. I don't want people to think I'm saying that you can't. You know, Black people can't be in pain. That's not it. But I do think that we have to. Think about like the care by which we do it, because it's interacting with a longer tradition in history of Black people laboring and no one caring, mm-hmm. right? Or laboring in these really abusive um, and oppressive ways, right? Um, and I don't want to reinscribe that, right? Even if it's just in something like a text. Well, it reminds me of Solmaz's line from her last book or lines, empathy means laying down in someone else's chalk lines and snapping a photo. And she says this just after saying that empathy is one of the requirements of statehood. And it's a sentiment I imagine is kindred to your own questioning of stepping into the lives of others to see oneself there and what that does. But as an extension of this for Solmaz, she's wary of metaphor because of this of a thing standing in for something else. And I think she has a persuasive politics around this aesthetic. But I'm also very compelled by Sabrina Ora Mark's meditations on metaphor as an enactment of the state of exile. Mm. She, she says 
metaphor makes language lack a certain presence where language happens to be or elsewhere. Metaphor is a movable burial plot. It contains, like soil and air, the uncontainable. Metaphor is a ghost turning back into a boy. I don't think these are necessarily in opposition, um, but talk to us about your own relationship to metaphor, given your concerns around where we place our finger mm-hmm. in the brick or whose indentation we're putting our finger in. Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have an opening to a poem of mine called The City, where I say, empathy will not end genocide. It won't even delay it, right? Um, and so when I think about empathy, I'm probably more in line with Somas in that we often turn to it, but what we're actually turning is to our own sort of emotional desires and catharsis, right? And I actually think empathy, like I saw a really great uh, discussion of this by uh, Danielle Oh, I can't believe I'm breaking her last name. She's a short fiction writer. Her first book was Don't Cut Off Your Own Full Head. I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking on Danielle's last name, but she has a great essay on craft in the Sewanee Review, maybe spring 2022, maybe spring 2021, where she talks about how empathy works sort of on like the individual level. But when you move to something like nation and community, it really sort of falls apart because a nation is not an empathetic, it doesn't have the like the capacity for empathy. And I thought that was a really brilliant way. But in terms of metaphor, I, I like metaphor. <laughs> like, I, you know, um, how do I say this? So Maz also says this thing, we had a discussion where she says, um, all stanzas are announcements of power, right? And I think this about the idea of something standing in for another, right? So you have to decide how you want to sort of cooperate or interrogate power in the stanza, right? Or play with like perceived ideas of power, right? Through something like a couple. I think this about metaphor, right? Like I think that there's a way in which uh, metaphor can be used in in harmful ways, but I also think it can be sort of not, right? And it all became, it's about ethics, right? The ethics of how one deploys this, right? Which is what I think, uh, and when I say this, I mean language. Uh, how do we deploy the metaphor? Uh, what is what is the metaphor doing? Can we be aware of what it's obscuring? Um, because there's also that moment where, for me, I've had, now this is personal, I had the experience of the metaphor really nailing something, right? And really illuminating a thing that I could not see without it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's all about the the ethical deployment of anything, of any craft. Right? Yeah. It's like a hammer, a hammer can be violently used or it can be used to build something. You similarly have a really interesting meditation on writing persona, writing in and about a body or language or culture or social position or class that is not the poets. And you characterize the two sides as the free speechers and the strict constructionists who believe to deploy or inhabit the materials of another culture furthers the extraction of the labor and materials of that culture but you yourself think from a middle position where you suggest that the problem might be our inability to imagine the other in ecstasy, where you say, what if the pursuit of writing about the other means understanding the other as a body in possession or position of ecstasy 
rather than sorrow or only sorrow, where you argue not that pain and sorrow should be off limits, but that ecstasy, pleasure, and joy should be comprehensible within the moments of struggle and sorrow. And you use as one example Christopher Gilbert's work, which is, in your words, suffused by his sense of wonder, wonder at how to be part of something that is not one's own, how that wonder can pull someone into a place of joy. And I don't know if this is the same thing or something different, but I, I also think of your craft talk you gave called The Work of Art in the Age of Ferguson, Baltimore, and Charleston, where you talk about Seamus Heaney's poem, Punishment, about the people who were murdered and hidden in the bogs of Ireland centuries ago and have since become these eerily preserved bog bodies, and how his poem teaches you to write about brutality that is culturally sanctioned, because Heaney reanimates the body, making it into a puppet, eroticizing the dead, but he critiques his own impulse and subject position as the artful voyeur, questioning his position as a modern person looking from a distance and implicating himself in the act of stoning and communal violence, sort of demonstrating the limits of empathy. So given how the question of writing the other is so seemingly eternally in the foreground of our literary discussions these days, talk to us about this metric of ecstasy regarding your middle path around inhabiting the the position of otherness. Yeah, it comes about thinking about that poem uh, that uh, Christopher Gilbert wrote, and also thinking about the poem that started us into this modern conversation or contemporary conversation of the persona poem that was published in The Nation. And one of the things that I, I began to think about is the way in which we think of, it's, it's funny, this happens for us, I think, as poets sometimes or writers sometimes. We are aware of ourselves as being bodies and people constantly in emotional flux, but somehow we forget that when we write. And so uh, I became really interested in the idea of how one cannot know something and that can send one into a place of like ecstasy or joy or being even right. Like I'm thinking about in the poem, Christopher Gilbert is trying to learn how to braid his sister's hair, but just being asked to do something he's not necessarily doesn't know how to do, right? Something he's witnessed, but just being asked to participate is enough to bring about pleasure, ecstasy, right? Just to be asked to be a novice, to be non-native to the moment, as he said, right? And I was like, oh, that's such a great complication of something like pleasure or joy, which we always think of as this thing for which we, we, we completely know and understand. And there's a sort of a sense of like all in it and that one is really great at something, right? What I began to think about is the way in which might we extend this idea to how we build even characters that are in ongoing catastrophe. For instance, I think about like Moonlight, that movie Moonlight, right there, where there's moments where there's absolute beauty that these characters are experiencing in the middle of something like parents addicted to drugs, right? Or trying to figure out one's sexuality, right? Like all of that. Right. There's still these moments of like little snatches of pleasure. And it makes me think of this scholar who brought this to my attention through her article in GLQ, Aliyah Abdel Rahman, who talks about what if 
I know this is going to be a weird way of getting to persona, but what if like we never get there? What if like the, the goals of like black, black freedom are not able to be achieved? What if like actually what we're in is this like recursive thing? Are we going to wait for our, our ecstasy, for our joy, our pleasure? Or are we going to open it up, right, in these moments, right? And so one of the things that I think about is I grew up in, again, it, this is growing up with like people who were experiencing poverty, sometimes homelessness um, through the Pentecostal church, right? Poor black folks, right? And I would watch them on Sundays, like try to open up moments of joy and ecstasy that sort of counteracted, sort of spoke counter to what they were feeling and experiencing throughout the week. And so I began to think about this as a way of thinking about persona, right? Like, yes, conflict drives literature without a doubt, right? But how do we sort of express complication? I think about uh, Toni Morrison's Baby Suggs and Beloved, right? Where she asked for a piece of fabric, right? Or just color, because she wanted just to touch a piece of color even though she was sick or even though things were just having that piece of color in the middle of dying or in the middle of feeling bad offered her something else. Right. And I think that's the complication I want to see when we're writing about each other. And it's not, not right. Which is how do we see someone complicating their troubles, troubling their trouble, right. Not allowing the trouble to be the only thing that is in and of them. Well, one of the things that makes dark days so compelling and alive, I think, is that you root much of your philosophic and political and aesthetic meditations in your own biography and within the everyday choices you have to make. Part of this is around your own upbringing and the lives of your parents and grandparents, but more so Dark Days is a deep look at becoming a father and the choices you make around how to raise your daughter. We learn that you read a poem a day with your daughter from the age of four, how you ponder whether to take her when she's five to protests and ultimately decide yes. You work through how to talk to her about why you don't stand for the national anthem or about the killing of black people when she hears sirens and wonders if they're coming for her or for you. We learn about your own fears about staying alive, about encounters with the police about her falling in love with songs from the musical Hamilton and you thinking about the way Hamilton tries to, quote, body swap our way to freedom. And you mentioned Toni Morrison helping fund Ishmael Reed's critical response to Hamilton, the play, The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Reed, who prior to the play wrote many essays such as Hamilton, the musical, Black actors dress up like slave traders and it's not Halloween. And Hamilton and the Negro whisperers, Miranda's consumer fraud. But ultimately it feels like lots of your decisions with your daughter are about making sure not to falsely console her. Where you say, severing black children from the American dreaming tradition might be one of the fundamental foundational jobs of black parents in America. A line that I think brings us back to the photograph at the beginning, the refusal of entering Obama's dream. Um, but can you talk more about the American dreaming tradition and the importance of severing oneself from it and maybe any other ways you try to do so as a father in your own family? Yeah. 
part of this American dreaming tradition that I don't know if we realize as part of it is everything's going to turn out all right. Everything's going to be all right for everyone, right? And it won't be. Partly because we are making it such as American citizens, not a right for a lot of people around the world. And one of the things is I want her to be accountable to that. I want her to understand as a black child in America that she will occupy two positions as oppressed and oppressor just by being birthed here under the circumstances that she was birthed here under. Uh, and that she has to constantly negotiate that. I actually think that that's kind of like intelligence, right? Like how to negotiate. And uh, I get this from thinking about Akile and Bembe's critique of black reason, where he talks about on the plantation, this would happen, right? One moment enslaved person is being oppressed, being whipped, and the next moment they could be informing on someone, right? Or be, being the one whipping, right? Um, and so, I'm really thinking about the American dreaming tradition with Naima, my daughter, because so much of like when I left home was a was ways that I had to sever myself from it. I always thought, oh, I, I wish somebody would have told me these things <laughs> before I had left home. I don't want her to walk about believing that when she's like, you know, buying this pair of jeans that there's that she she doesn't understand the maquiladoras right or the factories that are producing the gene she's buying and the labor that is required of that and the abuse and the potential abuse of power that's involved in that i want her to to be aware of that because i think it'll help her make decisions and i think if we want our children to make decisions that are about changing the future then we have to give them all of the history and truth behind the thing. So anytime she asks, like we were just reading last night, um, the book uh, Pies from Nowhere, which is about Georgia Gilmore and the Montgomery bus boycotts and how uh, Georgia Gilmore was this amazing black woman who helped uh, fund the bus boycotts through an organization, a secret organization called Club from Nowhere, where they would bake pies and sell them and and they basically funded, helped fund the Montgomery Bus Club by, and they also helped buy other cars so that they could take people around, right? But what Georgia Gilmore wanted was she wanted to make sure no one else associated with the making of the pies would get in trouble. So when people asked who made these pies, she said, no one. Where did they come from? Nowhere. Mm. And I try to teach my daughter about these things as well, right? That's breaking her too from american dreaming tradition right it's teaching her that a lot of like black freedom like in order for black people to get free we have to be subversive about it. like it won't be done on social media it will be done through clubs from nowhere right being no one and for hundreds of years that's how it's been done and i want her to know that right so to me uh there's this idea that you know if you petition your senator right the legislature will you know We'll, we'll do right. It's like, no, no, baby, your daddy was just up there and legislatures turned their back when your daddy spoke to them about the anti-truth campaigns going on in Texas and why certain legislation that they're proposing is retrogressive and ultimately racist, sexist, and homophobic, right? I want her to know that. Mm. Senators do not have her best intent. Right. You know, like I always think about that. <laughs> That moment where Kanye West said, um, 
it was during the Hurricane Katrina. Um, I don't know if you remember this Hurricane Katrina happened, and there was this before Kanye was, you know, Kanye now. And I don't know if he would say if you agree with the Kanye 2005, but he was on there with Michael Myers and they were trying to raise money. And Kanye goes off script and he says, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And I want her to understand this nation does not care about you. Yeah, They don't care about me. They don't care about you. Well, I want to take this, this sentiment and these questions about the American dreaming tradition back into sound and talk about these questions through that lens. We have a question for you from the anthropologist, ethnomusicologist, and musician, Alexi Chavez. My boy, Chavez. <laughs> who, who you've collaborated with before and with whom you are collaborating with again on his upcoming album, Sonorous Present. And I should say this question came in really late in the game, so I couldn't elegantly build my questions around it and place it. So it's a robust and rich and multidimensional question, but it culminates in the final seconds into a question that we've already spoken into in different ways. So when he's done, I'm going to pull on another of many threads within it and redirect you to that once, once we hear the full question from Alex. Saludos, Roger. It's Alex. Uh, first, thank you, David, for the invitation. I always love being in, in conversation with, with my good friend, Roger. So, you know, in our work, both individually and in collaboration, uh, we've made space uh, to meditate on sound, uh, subjectivity, borders, both their limits and acts of refusing and transgressing those limits to make connections across difference, for instance. And so I want to take us there for a moment to travel there. And the app metaphor is, well, you know, Roger, that I've often invoked is that of a bridge. That a bridge is a connection called up by desire. It's a desire to move, to greet, to reunite. It's a desire to go so that a return can come into being or a crossing. It's a necessary trajectory. It's when your own body loosens and you feel a connection with another being, another place, a verse, a melody, and both of you are affected, the other next to you, the story conveyed, an emotion elicited, the echoes of meaning that touch. And these imaginings, right, these bridges, often become politicized in contexts of violence and injustice. It's why, and, and you'll appreciate this, Roger, it's why, for instance, the Corrido, the Mexican epic ballad, was so crucial in a social world of the 19th century where, quote, literal death, flesh-ripping death, abounded as a consequence of politics, end quote. That's uh, José Limón. That is, that connection and memory were necessary to living in the Texas-Mexican borderlands. And still, for Mexican migrants, the politics of death and dying have not receded. And so, we may begin thinking about all the possibilities that could be bridged across something like a border. What connections might these bridges entail? 
And this question for me relates less to the result of having crossed, right, the finality of it, than to the bridge itself, the moment of crossing with all of its intensities, the collapsing of place through saturated imaginings that reach out and suddenly drag things and people into view when adjacencies occur and people and moments fold together. These bridges carry intentions, and in the end, I continue to ask, and I believe, Roger, through your work, you also ask, what does this crossing sound like? For in contexts where people are excluded from the realms of formal politics, let's say, right, that these precarious existences provide the conditions under which sound, as transgression, as refusal, as excess, can be understood as a bid for a certain kind of survival, a certain kind of survival in spaces of death at a level beyond the barest of bare life. And I think this resonates with the sort of speculative worlds imagined through, say, Afrofuturism or really black music more broadly. It's what Ashton Crowley has put forth as, uh, quote, otherwise possibilities, end quote. And in this capacity to create worlds otherwise is to fashion a line of escape to invoke George Jackson, right? It is to map a way out of existing ontologies of capture by unleashing creative forces, producing new conditions. And this recognition of sound as a potentially radically autonomous force requires that we trace its flows beyond imposed ordering. So, brother, Roger, do you think of your work in relation to sound? Sound as refuge, sound as survival. If so, how? And if not, why not? Un abrazo, brother. I hope to see you soon. So just as my brief add-on to this from this wonderful question from Alex, obviously we've already talked about your work in many ways in relation to sound, but I'm curious about Alex's notion of the bridge and whether you see sound in your work more broadly in these terms as a bridge as something that sounds across difference, and if so, how that would look to you. And anything else, obviously, in this this really capacious question of Alex's that you want to respond to? It's interesting because I keep thinking about the middle of the bridge versus the ends of the bridge or the being in the bridge. And the bridge is sort of the break, right? And so I do think of myself as sort of definitely playing in the break of things or in, in the breaks and thinking about the sort of the wound or the gap, right? Um, and, and the way in which sound can be there. But at the same time, I, I think about it as like a simultaneity or maybe a neither nor, right? Like when you're in the middle of the bridge, you're not in one place or the other, right? You're sort of in that interstitial zone and sort of that liminality. But I wonder, can I answer this question also with a poem? Of course. So when I heard the bridge, one of the things that I was thinking with, and I always love to think with and have by me is Christopher Gilbert. The first poem in the book Across the Mutual Landscape is called This Bridge Across. And I think for me, this is sort of how I might answer this. Perfect. So this is Christopher Gilbert, Across the Mutual Landscape. Uh, and the poem is This Bridge Across. A moment comes to me and it's a lot like the dead who get in the way sometimes 
hanging around with their ranks growing bigger by the second. In the game of tag they play, claiming whoever happens by. I try to put them off, but the space between us is like a country growing closer, which has a language I know more and more of me is, growing up inside of. And the clincher is the nothing for me to do inside here, except to face my dead, as the spirits they are. Find the parts of me in them. Call them back with my words. Ancestor worship or prayer. It's a kind of getting by, an extension of living beyond myself, my people talk. And each moment is a boundary I will throw this bridge across. Mm. Right? So I think of sound as that thing that we're throwing across. We're constantly throwing this bridge across, right? The sound becomes that possibility, right, of connecting a thing, right, that wasn't priorly prior to connecting. One of the things I love working with Alex is we're always thinking about ways to make these connections, right? And to and bringing with us many different sorts of materials and even uh, variations on what it is to bridge, to make a thing that moves across sonically that offers a possibility that otherwise um, it'll change, right? Like the sound, one of the things I love, this is, you know, why I love poems is there's so many different forms right and so there's so many different bridges that one can make in some ways and so many different sounds that one can sound like oneself in and so that to me is how i'm thinking about sound and form it's and what the bridge is right the bridge is the thing that we sort of always carry with us sonically it is it literally happens with sound right sound literally moves from here to somewhere else i wanted to place alex's question here as sort of the beginning of talking about sounding across difference and some of the questions that I have for you around sounding across difference. So thinking about sound and thinking about the American imaginary, I'm going to quote something else that Alex has said and then try to connect it to your own writing. In an episode of the Anthropod podcast called Sounds of Borders, this is Alex. Josh Kuhn, or Josh Kuhn, I don't know which it is, but I'll say Josh Kuhn, Josh Kuhn, in a book called Audiotopia, makes a case for how the American racial imaginary has been generated in part through experiences of music and through experiences of sound. So there's a way that selective listening has constructed a kind of oral harmony, A-U-R-A-L, oral, constructed a kind of oral harmony in the service of the project of U.S. white racial hegemony because it silences the kind of presumed dissonance that racial and ethnic difference introduce. So within that context, he argues that those differences ultimately sound out against the constraints of this monocultural vision of American citizenship, that they have a capacity to disturb the national aesthetic of unisonance, a one singular sound. In Sounds of Crossing, I extend that argument to suggest that the kind of construction of what he calls the American audio-racial imagination is not only about how America hears itself domestically, but equally about what it hears itself against. Mm. Those sounds from outside, for instance, outside its national borders. 
in other words, the sort of policing of American national culture in these English-only kind of initiatives. But that policing is definitely the sort of segregationist project that necessarily kind of extends its oral attention beyond the physical space of the nation. This makes me think of a lot of things. This makes me think of the word barbarian in the title of your last book. The word barbarian, like the word Berber in in North Africa, a word created as an imitation of the sound of the uncivilized other when the civilized hear them speak. But I wanted to connect this to something I loved that I read in your, um, forgive me, in your doctoral thesis in 2012. Oh my God, why did you read that? Don't do that, man. No, but this That's, is really good. You tell me. Archives, player. <laughs> so, <the> archives. <laughs> uh, black Western thought toward a theory of the black citizen object. In that thesis, you talk about being in a class in early romantic literature, which you've already referred to today, and how unexpectedly your work in that class became the beginning of your interest in the subjectivity of objects and black subjectivity. But where you also talk about an exchange with a teacher who didn't understand your use of the word trouble as a verb in your paper and wanted you to change it to the word challenge. And where you walk us through the history of the word trouble as a verb in black spirituals and ultimately say, I would explain that while the use of the word challenge would be more palatable, more easily recognizable to the academy at large, The use of the word trouble in its unrecognizability performs two services. It broadens the linguistic and intellectual archive of the academy, and it brings African-American language and intellectual practices, processes, and traditions in relation, a poetics of relation, to British cultural and aesthetic artifacts and the scholarly discourse that surrounds them. So based on this, and I granted this was 10 years ago, so your views might have changed, but I wanted to ask you about what seems like a very different relation for you toward the canon than you have toward America. Whereas with America, you say, the art, literature, culture, style, lives we've made out of genocide, I would argue, do not belong to America. We've made beautiful things despite America to give jazz, the blues, hip-hop over to America is akin to giving Frederick Douglass's master partial credit for writing Douglass's slave narratives and autobiographies. You seem, on the other hand, very engaged in a poetics of relation with regards to the non-black canon, whether Pound or Stevens or Louise Glick, with some of the poets themselves having been accused of racism or anti-Semitism or, or happily those things, um, love mm-hmm. of fa- a love of fascism, um, p- poets who are decidedly other and sometimes participate very explicitly or less explicitly in white supremacy. And your engagement brings you to wonderfully, I think, provocative places. Like when you say, in dark days, you say, I came to sense that Eliot's articulation of memory and ecstasy is ontologically black and queer. So I was, I was hoping you could talk to us about how you see your relation to the canon and canon formation, something that seems decidedly different 
if not opposed to, say, the project of Tayemba Jess, where he's unearthing and foregrounding a black archive in relationship to itself, sort of creating a system of, of erased or forgotten or never centered black artists. One of the things that I think we have to remember in the, the making of nationalist discourse around art is every art form that black Americans have created was originally rejected by the establishment, sequestered or tried to vehemently work against proliferating, right? Like I think about how hard it was for jazz musicians to make money because they had to have cabaret licenses. And there's a famous incident of Miles Davis getting his head beat in outside of a club and his cabaret license being taken from him, right? So like, I don't, like one of the things that I'm really interested in is when did, this is provocative again, but when did black Americans start calling themselves Americans, right? There was a way in which prior to 1960, I don't think we would have probably, most black folks would have called themselves American, partly because we were in, under apartheid. We were not Americans. We were second class citizens. Even when James Baldwin was talking about being American, he's doing it right to really piss off white folks, right? That would have had a problem with him sort of deploying, right? This, right? So it's an ironic relationship to America, right? Um, so one of the things that I think I'm saying about jazz and blues and hip hop is that, you know, we know this with hip hop. It wasn't until, I remember, when, I, re, I have to say 2005 was, revel, no, 2009 was revelatory for me. I think that was the year when like that song Black and Yellow was like, everybody was singing it. It was like, I remember when hip hop went, became mainstream. Like that was only like 15, 16 years ago. Like I grew up when people were like, that's noise, that's, you know, and music, you know, like that's not like white folks were, the kids don't listen to this, this is right. Like the late, right. So there's a way in which to me, this should be obvious that like black music has not been American music, partly because of the opposition to it by the American, by Americans, <laughs> simply. Um, I think saying it makes people be like, oh, that's seems provocative. But it's not provocative when you look at the actual history of the music and the musicians that had to play to live it, right? Like, it actually isn't provocative to say these that America found this music completely problematic, right? And that it wasn't American, right? So one, I want to sort of couch that, like, we have to actually, like, look at the actual history and not just get caught up in the statement, right? And not that you were at all. But uh, <laughs> the other is thinking about one's relationship to like the canon or tradition. And again, we already kind of talked about this. It's, the same, it's my same relationship to the Pentecostal church, mm. right? It's the same subversive, it's the same sort of future. Like I'm going to take what works and what don't, I'm going to leave it, right? Like it's, it's, it's the same relationship. So like my relationship to, you know, Stevens or anybody, right? Like I'm going to take what works and I'm going to leave what doesn't work. I'm going to play in what they don't want me to play. Right. Like that's part of it too. Right. I'm going to play in all this material, all this sonic material. If it has a sound, I'm going to play with it. And I'm, I'm not going to appropriate it. Right. Like, but I'm going to think about it. One of the things that I, I think that we forget is that work has an imagination beyond itself because language is like anything else, much older than we are. And poetics and people's poems are actually much older than they actually are as well. And it's doing things that they never intended. So what I'm going to do is, think about the imagination. I think Tyan Bajess does this with John Berryman, right? With with Henry, 
right? He sort of is like, okay, Berryman created this uh, blackface figure, right? That's in John Berryman, the poet, for folks that don't know, created this blackface figure, and he would sometimes use it in his poems, right? And Thomas Jess was like, I'm going to take that figure and do something else that Berryman never intended, right? I think that's cool. Right? Like, I'm like, yo, that's what we should be doing, right? Like, I think, yeah. I think it's, it's to be played with, right? Um, and there's many ways of playing with, with a thing. I think about, um, there was a play on, uh, I think off Broadway, I think it was a finalist for a Pulitzer, maybe won some OBs that played with blackface um, a few years ago. You know, I'm, I'm open to play. I'm open to see, like, it doesn't mean it's going to be pulled off. This is the other thing we have mm-hmm. to, this is something that's difficult. If someone might do something and it not be good or it not be done well, I'm okay with that. That's kind of the like, what if of art, right? Like people are going to try something. I'm not saying we should not call it out or we shouldn't describe and detail because I actually think we learn a lot from bad art. I actually think we learn a lot from art that's, I don't want to say bad art, that's a bad term, unsuccessful art, art that doesn't pull itself all the way off, right? Um, doesn't pull off its its intent, right? I'm not saying that we should be racist, homophobic, transphobic in our literature. That is not what I'm, I'm but what I am asking people to do is, is take risk with things. And then sometimes those risks don't succeed. Right? Like I'm taking a lot of risk, I think, in this book. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, like, you know, I'm critiquing things that people love, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Hamilton, oh my God. <laughs> Hamilton, right but you know <laughs> I just found this article my partner she's a historian she sent me an article that actually shows you know that Hamilton owned slaves and not just through the Schuylers but actually Philip Schuyler may have I think that's I think that was the may have actually bought slaves for Hamilton on, on Hamilton's behalf right but we want to throw that away right because we have to have this narrative of what Hamilton is, right? And and so, you know, I'm I'm interested in the play. Like, let's let's loosen, you know. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but yeah, yeah. like I so like how I'm my relationship to the canon is again, it's it's like any hegemonic force. Right? Like it's my relationship to English. Sometimes I'm trying to make English be nonsensical. Sometimes I'm speaking, sometimes I'm using it to do things like glossolalia, right? To speak in tongues. Right. Um, and I want to do that with the tradition. I want to do that with all these different writers that are that have come before me. Sometimes I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something never intended with their work, right? I'm gonna put Ame Cesaire next to Gertrude Stein. Yeah, right. I remember that exchange between Derrida and Coleman when they talk about neither of them having languages of origin, and Coleman asking Derrida if he felt like sometimes it interfered with thought, the fact that he was thinking in a language that wasn't a language of origin. That was a really interesting part of their discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about that often. I talk about that with like Somas or with Natalie Diaz. It's a hard to know thing, right? It, particularly if you don't have another language, right? Like I, like I, I learned French growing up, right? That's still not a language that is mine, right? In that same way. My daughter, I, she, her mother, her, my, my partner, she's Puerto Rican. She's learning Spanish. That's still a colonizer's language, right? right. For, for Puerto Rico, right? For so, sure. Um, and so what I've been thinking about is um, how do we play in those gaps? How do we how do we question those things? How do we bring about that possibility, right? And I do think that that's, that's where silences can be really useful or explosions, right? And playing with certain types of rupturing that actually is about sort of thinking about the silences. 
that are there. Well, I wanted to save my favorite part of the book for near the end, which is also an area where I think you take big risks, but that's not why it's my favorite part. But the essay, Intimate Freedoms and Intimate Futures, which is a critique of the 1619 Project, and also a deeply imagined alternative to it that uses the character 6-0 from Beloved as the inspiration. Before we talk about 6-0 and your counterpoint to the 1619 Project, I'd love to spend some time with your critique of it. I remember when it first came out, a project that centers the arrival of the first slave ship in 1619, the White Lion, as the origin story of America as America. Natalie Diaz tweeting that ignoring the history of indigenous democracy, which predated the U.S. founding, amounted to a a form of erasure. And some people then calling her out as anti-black, saying that after being so marginalized in America's telling of its own history, and after all the scholarship done by black women for black people to finally center their story, to finally tell the history of America from a position of centrality, to have these critiques come from Diaz amounted to anti-blackness, that she should instead celebrate this achievement and focus on centering her own people and telling their story in a similar fashion alongside it. And you talk in Dark Days about the sometimes fraught history between Native peoples and people of the African diaspora in North America, whether Native participation in the slave trade or Buffalo soldiers participating in the Indian Wars, an ongoing legacy that still sometimes manifests as anti-Blackness in the Native community or Indigenous erasure within the Black community. Something that I, I suspect is informing this exchange and its tensions that happened when the 1619 Project came out. Nevertheless, I remember feeling unconvinced and skeptical that Natalie was speaking from a place of anti-Blackness, and your critique of the project gave me words for what I imagine Natalie was getting at, where what you are critiquing is the centering itself and the desire for centering. You suggest history must be complicated through diffusion rather than centering, and that to center 1619 as America's founding is to perform a type of ethnocentrism that elides two ongoing histories. Where, in your words, Nicole Hannah-Jones grafts the African-American body onto the disingenuous American mythologizing of its history, and that 1619 is not the beginning, but the middle, and that exclusion of natives from the story perpetuates what David Troyer argues that nativeness must always be beautifully and romantically absent. So talk to us about why centering in your mind is so problematic. Why two parallel projects, as some of the critics suggested, one black and one native, both centering themselves is not the answer. That the real story is at the margins, the margins of both narrative, but also the margins of identity. Yeah. Um, earlier in the in the discussion, I talked about the nation and the problem of nation. And what I find completely ironic, to the point of like, this is obvious. How can a how can we center democracy and slavery? 
unless we want to tell the truth about democracy, which is democracy can bear slavery. But that's not what we're saying, right? That democracy is actually allows for and can perpetuate slavery, but that's not what we're saying, right? So for me, centering is problematic because what the desire is, is to be the node by which everything else sort of moves around. And I don't think that that's gonna liberate black people or native folks or anybody, right? I don't think that's gonna change the nation. And so one of the things that I think I want to hold in question, and partly the reason I'm holding this in question is because our art has held it in question, right? Like I find it interesting that like Daughters of the Dust wasn't discussed, right? Daughters of the Dust is a great film by Julie Dash, wherein she's looking at the islands off the coast of South Carolina in Georgia and Florida called the Gullah Sea Islands where black folks were kept during slavery sometimes and therefore never made it to the mainland. And one of the things that I find so beautiful about this film is that black folks are inter interacting with native folks throughout the film. And one of the things is that we know certain types of black liberation would not be possible without, during slavery, without native involvement, right? Particularly in Florida, into Mexico, right? Like also 1619 isn't the first time that black people are here. It's just not. Um, the Spanish had been here. <laughs> Colonial Mexico had the largest black population. There's a great book called Black Creoles, uh, history book, right? What we also get in centering quote unquote America is we've, we, we, she sort of recapitulates the erasure of South America, of Central America, right? And the way in which the U.S. becomes America, but the U.S. is the U.S., Right. Um, and what I would have loved to see is a more sort of robust and rigorous thinking about the intersection of these two ongoing sort of modernities, we might say, both black and native. Right. And the way in which they were sort of brought about together. Right. But like to me, it just it seems as if if we really are trying to counteract or uh, critique the exclusion of black folks, right, from the quote-unquote story of the U.S., then what we would also be trying to do is critique all these exclusions because they were all happening simultaneously and happening in a coordinated fashion. And our liberation was too. It's not saying that Black liberation is Native liberation, Native liberation is Black, because what we want as communities are very different, right? And even what we want inside Black communities and inside Native communities in terms of liberation is going to be different and how we want the U.S. to respond. We, we don't need myth. What we need is complication. We need to deal with the difficulty of these things. And again, my example is Sikso because Sikso goes, and one of the things I think that he does really, that Morrison does really beautifully is to have him ask for permission. He, so Sikso in Beloved is, he's going to meet the 40 mile woman. So he's met, he has this uh, partner that he's wants to sort of have a relationship with, but she's on one plantation, he's on another, and they're about 34 miles away. So they call it a 40 mile walk. And so Sikso would have to go back and forth over the weekend, over a Sunday, meet with her. He would walk the distance to meet her, basically tell her good morning, then have to walk back, right? So he finds this abandoned or no longer used uh, Native American spiritual space. And he asks the spirits, can he bring his lady there? Because it's about halfway between them. And it would be easier if she could meet him or a, three, two, a third or two thirds, I forget the distance between them, but it would make it easier. And I always loved that moment as a moment of thinking about 
oh, maybe like that's the possibility of to think about this intimacy. Is, and this was the way I began to think about how like black families can come to be was in order for Cixo to make family, he had to sort of, in order for him to have intimacy, he had to have intimacy also with native folks, right? And what their sense of land was and their sense of space was. He was trying to honor them, right? So much of thinking about like, where are black people in the future? How are we economically? Is to not to recapitulate capitalism such that we're we're doing the exploitation. We are the ones that own the means and modes of production, but to actually think about how do we end or begin to integrate others into into a more sort of equitable society, right? And that's about creating intimacy, right? And thinking about that way. Well, and you also go into this question of this conundrum of owning land and the power that anybody gets from owning land, but then how do you contend with securing the base of power for your people while also contending with that the land is stolen to begin with? Uh, I love the way the 6-0 part of the book, which is really moving, it sort of it re-evokes the, the notion of hush harbors, but it isn't just slaves and black people it's a provisional and always renegotiated space with others that aren't you. And you say things like, which I loved, the future must conspire with the edges and borders of another. And you talk about world building within the wound, which I think is so great, that, that notion. It comes about from me thinking about like maroon culture, right? That world that like that one must build within something like, like, cause that's what Maroons did. They ran away to the great dismal swamp in Florida. They ran to different places. And within, even within plantations, there were actually Maroons. Like on plant, like on actual plantations, there would be, because we, we think of plantations probably as like these like farms with rows and, you know, like big cornfields and things like that. And that's like, that's not all of what a plantation was. Sometimes plantations were very sort of still very uh, wilderness. Like, and so within sometimes plantations, there were actual maroon cultures, maroon, runaway slaves and fugitive enslaved folks that had built a separate autonomous space. And I think, oh, what if we, we might need to do that, right? It won't look the same, right? But we might think about like our autonomy that way, that we might have to build spaces and we will have to do this thinking about native folks because these spaces will occur on their land, right? And we have to sort of think about how we can have a conversation about like, hey, you know, we were dragged here and we're trying to figure it out, right? And can can we figure it out together, right? We don't want to do any more taking <laughs> than has already happened, right? But what we have to do is talk about like, but we're here, right? And and that's the conversation that I, you know, and I know folks are having those conversations and have had these conversations. Or in it. Like these aren't, I'm not proposing anything new, but what I want to do is think about the way in which we might need to have more of them and be and thinking about them. And so for me, the 1619 Project was a great opportunity to think about this in terms of building this alternative canon, this alternative history of America, right? And it was sponsored by one of our, you know, it's sponsored by the New York Times. That's huge, right? It just, it's, it's just, you know, I just thought that was an opportunity. Well, I love this idea of finding these autonomous spaces at the margins of one's identity. This whole section, I feel like it provokes so many 
or evoked so many things that I feel like I could do an entire podcast episode with you just talking about this one section. But one of the things I did want to bring up, I'm going to exercise restraint and not bring them all up, but the one thing I did want to bring up that brings us back to the church and also questions that animate my own thoughts about my Jewish identity in relation to Jewish memory and in relation to diaspora and margins and related to the dispossession of Palestinians was my conversation with Padre Gotuma, the Irish poet and theologian who hosts Poetry Unbound. When we talked, we talked a lot about his book with Glenn Jordan, Borders and Belonging, which is about the Book of Ruth and how they used this book in their conflict resolution sessions between the Irish and the British in Northern Ireland, as it's a book from both of their traditions, Protestant and Catholic, and yet, in their mind, advantageously a book that neither people are very familiar with. And they place this book between them as a discussion space, rather than having them recite their own stories of grievance where they're centered and centering themselves. One thing I love about this meditation on the book of Ruth from the Hebrew Bible is that when the Jews were returning from Babylonian captivity, the question to God was, why did this happen to us? And different prophets had different opinions. Ezekiel said the temple was defiled and needed to be cleansed. Isaiah, that we needed a new social vision because of social injustice. Jeremiah thought prayer should have never been centralized in Jerusalem in one temple, that we needed to go back to decentralized, localized prayer, which is interesting to me that even at the time when the Jews had an axis mundi, a center, an umbilicus from which their cosmology was organized, the house of the indwelling divine feminine and the Ark of the Covenant, that even then there were those that were arguing against the center, against the centralized kingdom. But speaking most directly to our conversation today was Padraig's suggestion that the book of Ruth was written in response to the ideas of the fourth prophet, Nehemiah, one who seems to be the spirit of modern-day Israel, that who, who suggested that we were held captive in Babylon because we had allowed in the stranger, the foreigner and the other, that if you came back from Babylon with a foreign spouse, get rid of her. If you have children with polluted blood, get rid of them. And where Padraig imagines the writer of the Book of Ruth saying, you know what we most need now? We need a story that's about a foreigner who returns us to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that book has no divine intervention. Rather, it has all of these border crossings and many fraught and complicated moments of hospitality. And they're fraught because Ruth comes from the absolutely most hated people of the Israelites, the Moabites, the people who refused to feed the Israelites when they were starving in the desert. And yet the most difficult other becomes the matrilineal line that results in King David, the most exalted Jewish king, that the most central aspects of Jewish identity came from the margins or even from beyond Jewishness and from being alive to the provisionality of identity and borders. 
I don't know if this sparks any thoughts for you, but either way, I just, I wanted to share this way that six moved me as we came to an end. And also I wanted to have us go out, not with a conversation about the final photographs, because I want to preserve the pleasure of what it means for people to both journey toward them and then arrive at them. But with a reading of instructions for the underground. Thank you for that. I feel like you just gave me a gift with thinking about the Ruth. Uh, someone, you know, raised very, very aware of that. And mother has taught Sunday school lessons about Ruth. About Ruth. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Boaz. And, you know, like, I love this idea. There was no divine intervention, right? Right. This was something that had to happen, right, between peoples, right? And the people had to make this, right? That it really resonates. And actually, I find that to be really useful as a way of thinking about how often we do want to turn to, like, we don't need the governments, right? Like, like I think of that way of, like, needing governments to arbitrate some of these things. And I think, you know, mutual aid is another way for me to think about this. But I love that. What's Padraig? Padraig uh, Otuma. Otuma. Yeah, was, it's a great conversation that we, we talk we talk about, you know, conflicting the erasure of dreaming, I think also like these narratives when you're not contending with other narratives and you're just dreaming your narrative forward, you know, the disaster of that. Um, and to contend with them, not necessarily that they're on equal. I didn't mean to suggest that the British and the Irish were, were just like brothers who had <laughs> had a disagreement and they're very aware of that power dynamic as Irish people. But, um, it's, yeah, it's, it was pretty interesting conversation to have about his own relation to Christianity too, which is really mm -hmm. unusual mm -hmm. and, and generative. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to go, I'm going to check that, that one out. Yeah. Uh, so this is instructions for the underground. Sleep, sleep some more. If you've made it here, wherever here is, you are probably tired in need of rest, so rest. In the underground, we steal from those not in the underground. We try to appear as if we're not in the underground. There are people who, in entities that, do not want you to be here and will do anything they can to take you out of here and away from us. In the underground, eat well. Laugh. Dance. Play spades, read books, bake cakes, fuss, fight, fuck, and carry on. Make mistakes, forgive, open the underground to others, close the underground to others. Be here uncomfortable and be comfortable in it. In the underground, we afflict and comfort, afflict and comfort. Do not require the above ground to be the underground. Do not require the underground to be anything like the above ground. Grace, have it, be with it. Don't die, then sometimes do. Be quiet when you want to. Your money is no good. If we decide to make money good, then we will need an underground beneath, above, or to the side of this underground. What will we make for each other in the dark, in the heat, in the cold, in the silence? Will we bring with us the songs from before? What will we do with the old gods? The old gods are not required 
to love us here. No God is required for entry. Be careful. The underground may not, in fact, be under. Never mistake what it is, but what it ain't. You can hum here if you want. Come on, come on, come on now. Don't you want to go? You can leave when you want, but you may not be able to get back in. Everything here is on the one. The underground moves at will, sometimes against its will, sometimes at our will. There is no safety here. Remember to sleep. Sleep some more. Eat well. Remember what you couldn't out there. There's so much not to know down here. Do nothing. Listen for what you could not hear before. You may already be in it, the underground. Some of us may never get there. Allow the children. Teach the children to forage and hunt. Travel only at night. Be as definitionless as possible. Be. Wilderness. Re-enchant failure. Love what you couldn't love out there. Come on, come on, come on now. Don't you want to go? Build new granaries, new storehouses, new paths. Map none of this. Be as ancient as you want to be. Being here does not exonerate you from suffering. Be formless. Be ready to move. Move. Open the underground to others. Do none of this. Do none of this. Thank you, Roger, for today and for Dark Days. Thank you. This was wonderful, man. So I hope I answered the questions. You do You do some hella reading, brother. You really... <laughs> The ornate Coleman, everything like all Ornette this. Coleman was, was great. Thank yeah. you for pointing me there. Thank you so much for just your the dedication to reading and to like to really sitting with the work, right? Like that's all we can ask. And I really, really appreciate your openness and like working with the book. And this is my first time, you know, first book nonfiction writer, so it means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. We were talking today to Roger Reeves about his essay collection, Dark Days from Great Wolf. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are wide variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, which now includes Roger Reeves reading from Hassan Kanafani's novella, Return to Haifa, Isabella Hamad reading political prisoner Walid Daka's letter, Parallel Time, 
craft lecture from Marlon James, long-form conversations with many translators, and much more, as well as the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, or a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleveland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 